Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, thanks for tuning in to a new episode of Talking France, a podcast for anyone who has an interest in France and wants to keep up to date with what's going on here. As always, in this week's show, we'll examine the important news and issues from around France. First up, we'll find out how ancient stones in Brittany ended up being bulldozed to make way for a DIY store. How can that happen? We'll look at what impact the Annecy knife attack has had on politics in France and also for the town itself, where thousands of tourists will descend this summer. And we'll find out why the French government is having to give advice out about taking a shower and look at how bad the droughts and heatwaves could be in France this summer. And there's a new row about an item of clothing being worn in French schools. We'll explain all as well as take a look at the man at the centre of the story. And on the subject of French schools, we'll find out why philosophy is compulsory for high school students in France. I'm Ben McPartland and I'll be joined by our regular guests, editor Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield and politics expert John Litchfield. Emma, Jen, thanks for being with us again, and we'll hear from John later. Um, if it's okay with you guys, I'd rather not do any small talk this week. We've got a lot to get through, so let's crack on. Is that all right with you? All right. Great. Now, Carnac is a little town that many might know. It's in the department of Morbihan, Brittany, Western France. It's all over the news, even making headlines in the international press. The mayor of Carnac and his family have just been placed under protection by the gendarme. Jen, what is going on here? So, as you mentioned, the mayor of Karnak, Olivier Lepic, has been receiving a lot of abuse in the past few days, so much so that he was put under protection. And that is because he's accused of having allowed 39 ancient standing stones to be destroyed in order to construct a DIY store. Now, this has been a big scandal in France uh, ever since it was revealed. And since then, some members of the French far right, including Eric Zemmour, have gotten involved denouncing what has happened as a destruction of France's national heritage. Now, you might know of Karnak because it is the location of a major prehistoric site uh, with one of the largest collections of standing stones in Europe. And these aren't just any stones or rocks in the ground. They are called menhir. I hope I pronounced that right. And if you've ever seen the cover of a Asterix and Obelix comic book, then that's actually the giant rock that Obelix is carrying on his back. Ah, I never knew that. Okay. I mean, I have been to Karnak. There are, it's an incredible site. There are thousands of these stones in the Karnak area, Jen. Why such a big fuss over 39 of them? They can spare a few, can't they? Well, these stones date back thousands of years, sometimes up to 4,500 BC. And they are relics from the pre-Celtic people that lived in Brittany. And that area now is now preparing to apply to be added as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And so these stones are a really important historical monument, and not just for the people of Brittany, but for all of Europe and really for all of the world, which is why there has been so much anger of the, over the fact that 39 of them were allegedly destroyed. Mm, the mayor has said he's received what he described as a tsunami of hate since this story emerged. Why has he come under fire, Jen? People have been targeting the mayor because he would have been the person to sign off on the building permit for the DIY store, Monsieur Bricolage. But in reality, it's a bit more complicated than that. It's not like someone went in and, and bulldozed Stonehenge, for example. The site itself is 
pretty big. The stones are spread out over four kilometers and they cover 27 different communes, like villages and hamlets in the area. And the stones that were allegedly destroyed were really far from the three main sites that people would visit. So these are Menek, Kermario, Kerlescan. And those are at least a kilometer or two away from them. And what likely happened, really, it was probably some kind of clerical error. Mm, the mayor has said, uh, you know, he's defended what's happened, saying it wasn't just him that gave the green light. And the man in charge of the building site has expressed regret, saying they would have done things differently if they'd known of the archaeological importance of the area. But archaeologists and some locals and visitors are understandably unhappy. Was this just one big uh, unfortunate misunderstanding, Jen, or something more sinister? Yeah, so this is where it gets really tricky. So everyone involved in okaying the building permit said that they did so by the books, especially the mayor. He has suggested that the problem is a recently updated zoning document, which did not contain some of the same information as the previous document. And then there's this other layer, which is the DRAC. This is the French government body that classifies areas as protected or historic zones. And they've suggested that actually only four stones have, quote, archaeological value. And those are the ones that may have been lost in the construction. Although they say they're still working to establish what was actually on the site that's being built over. So that's a bit unclear in terms of the actual archaeological importance of the site to begin with. And then, of course, there's another theory on the table. And this is from an amateur archaeologist in the area who originally is the one to have signaled the destruction of the stones to begin with. And he's claimed that elected officials in the area and the département are in a hurry to build up anything around that area because once it's classified with UNESCO, it won't be possible anymore due to building regulations becoming stricter. Now, we should add there's no proof for his allegations, however, but this is a pretty uh, tricky story to parse out. Mm, it's clearly ongoing as well. We haven't heard the end of this, Jen. France is famous for, for more than this archaeological site. You've picked out a, a couple for us, Jen. Yeah, so there's some really cool prehistoric places across France, especially if you're into caves. The most famous are probably the Lascaux Caves, which are in the Vézère Valley in Dordogne. And these are hundreds of prehistoric sites, uh, over two dozen caves with prehistoric art dating all the way back to the Paleolithic period. You may have actually seen these images before online, um, but they show prehistoric images of hunting scenes and animals. But if you're like me and you're a little bit claustrophobic, then you might be happy to hear that you can't actually enter the real caves themselves. Authorities closed them off to the public so that they would not become deteriorated. But they have created a very, very impressive replica called for Lascaux 4. And then there's another option in southern France, just north of Avignon. There's another important cave called the Grotte Chauvet, which is also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Now, this cave is super cool because the ancient drawings show a bunch of animals that are now extinct. It's kind of the same deal, though. You can't actually go inside, but you can visit the replica, which is arguably just as cool. And if you really want to walk inside some caves with prehistoric artwork, then you should probably head down to the Pyrenees uh, to visit the Niao Caves. Many of them are still open to the public. You can go in person, see some original paintings of bison, horses, and deer that date all the way back 13,000 years. Wow. Thanks, Jen, for explaining that story. I've been following it for a couple of weeks. We'll keep an eye on that on our website at thelocal.fr, bring you any updates and a couple of great suggestions there. Thanks, guys. Now, shortly after we recorded last week's podcast, and you've probably already seen the headlines, a man stabbed four young children and two adults in an apparently random attack in a park in the famous lakeside town of Annecy in the French Alps. Emma, before we get into the aftermath of this attack, what's the latest on it? Well, yeah, I mean, this terrible attack obviously left the whole of France in a state of shock, really. We can at least now say that all of the injured are out of danger and are reportedly making good recoveries from, uh, from their injuries. There was a man who was detained at the scene. He has now been charged with attempted murder. 
The prosecutor says that there is no evidence that this was a terrorist or political attack, but we're really left with a mystery as to why he did this terrible thing because he's reportedly refusing to cooperate or to explain his actions to police. Mm, as expected with incidents like this, it didn't take long for some of France's more outspoken politicians to have their say and start pointing the finger of blame around Emma. Right, yeah. As soon as the identity of the attacker became known, this became a major political topic. The man charged with this offence is Syrian. He was initially described as an asylum seeker, but now it's clear he's actually a refugee. His backstory is a little bit complicated, but he is a Christian from Syria who claimed asylum in Sweden back in 2013. He was granted asylum. He lived in Sweden for 10 years. He got married there and he apparently had no problems with Swedish authorities in the time that he was there. But then in November last year, after getting divorced, he travelled legally to France and he applied for asylum here. That was rejected at the beginning of June, four days before this attack, on the grounds that he already had refugee status in Sweden, so there was no need for Mm. him to be granted asylum here. Okay, so what exactly have these politicians been calling for here, given we still don't seem to have any idea of the motive for this attack, and as you say, the attacker travelled to France legally? Well, yeah, I mean, we're mostly talking about politicians on the right or the far right here. The rest have sort of confined themselves to expressions of shock and solidarity with the injured. But as soon as it was revealed that the attacker was Syrian, um, Eric Ciotti, who's the leader of the right-wing Le Republicain Party, he denounced it as an Islamist terror attack. That turned out not to be true. The attacker is a Christian who was heard to shout in the name of Jesus Christ during the attack. And the prosecutor says there is no evidence of a terrorist or political motive for this. Then once that became clear, there were calls to change France's system of asylum to make it easier to expel failed asylum seekers and to make it harder for people to travel here to claim asylum. However, again, the Syrian man is in fact a refugee. He's already been granted asylum in Sweden. And as a legal resident of Sweden, he was entitled to travel within the Schengen zone. So he's entered France perfectly legally. It's true that he did apply for asylum in France and was rejected, but that was on the grounds that, he, as I said, he, he already had asylum in Sweden. Mm. France's Interior Minister Gérald Darmanin described the fact that the attack came four days after his asylum bid was rejected as a troubling coincidence. But what are the rules in this case, Emma? Should he have been sent back to Sweden immediately? Well, when your asylum claim fails in France, asylum applicants then have one month to decide whether to lodge an appeal and they have the right to remain in France while the appeal is heard. If they decide not to appeal or if the appeal fails, they'll usually then be served with a notice to leave the country within 30 days, uh, an OQTF or Obligation de quitter le territoire français. Now, these OQTF orders, they have become a political issue in France recently due to a couple of recent cases of serious crimes committed by people who'd been ordered to leave the country because of immigration offences, such as overstaying visas, who had not left and whose orders just hadn't been enforced and then they went on to commit the crimes. Um, That wasn't the case here, though. The Syrian uh, man, he'd not even been served with his notice. He was still within his one-month period of deciding whether to appeal or not. So the upshot really is that he was in France perfectly legally. The only way, really, the rules could have been changed to prevent this attack from happening retrospectively is withdrawing France entirely from the the Schengen zone or the EU, a Frexit, in fact. And Frexit, taking France out of the EU, that had previously been a policy of Marine Le Pen's far-right Rassemblement National Party. She changed that policy after Brexit happened in the UK, once it became obvious how much the UK had been disadvantaged by leaving the EU. And now both she and the extreme-right pundit Eric Zemmour 
they advocate a kind of sort of Frexit by stealth, basically keeping France in the EU, but refusing to follow EU rules on subjects like mm. freedom of movement or processing asylum applications. OK, and just turning to Annecy itself, it's one of the most popular alpine towns in France. It's famous for the lake it stands beside and the cobbled streets and canals that run through the historic old town. What's been the reaction there, Emma? The current mayor of Annecy, uh, he's a member of the Green Party and he's been very keen not to allow the far right to use what happened in his town as a kind of rallying point. Demonstrations were actually banned by prefectural decree on the evening of the attack after far right activists issued a call to travel to Annecy. And the town later held an event to thank the two passers-by who risked their own lives to tackle the attacker. As a community, they've been really keen to emphasise their cohesion and not to allow this horrible attack to divide them. OK, this is a good time to bring in John Litchfield, our French politics expert. In John's column this week for The Local, he warned about the dangers of letting extremists dominate the debate around asylum and migration. I asked John to spell out what those dangers are. Well, it was obviously suggested by the terrible events in Annecy last week with, with the attack on, on children in the playground by a Syrian, not asylum seeker, but someone who already had asylum rights in Sweden and come to France. And, you know, it seems to me that there, there are lessons to be learned by the French from what happened in Britain, where the Brexit debate was, to a large extent, shaped by obsession with migration, European migration, but also uh, asylum-seeking suggestion that somehow Britain should be able to take control of its own borders and would be a happier and uh, more contented place if that could happen. And now, you know, Britain looks back and having made that big decision of Brexit and finds it, you know, it misses the European migrants and it can't control the, the, the migration or the asylum-seeking from the rest of the world any more than it could before. And it seems to be something very similar is happening here, that there's this idea that migration and, and asylum seeking are alleged swamping of France by thousands of people, which is statistically not at all the case, is taking control of the political debate without it being something that's really dominant in people's minds. I think it's the 12th most important issue for French people, but the, the right and not just the far right, but the, the centre right, is obsessed with this issue and sprang on this, uh, what happened in Annecy last week in, in, the, in what turned out to be a rather clumsy way because they were suggesting initially that this was a terrorist attack, a Muslim attack. It turned out that the young man involved was a Christian Syrian and, you know, clearly someone terribly disturbed and an appalling incident, but not something on which you can build a whole policy on asylum seeking or, or migration or suggest that somehow because of this one incident, the whole of the policy of asylum seeking, um, treating asylum seeking and migration in Europe is in dangerously out of control. There are things wrong with it, things that can be addressed. So I, I find it disturbing that that debate, and uh, it obviously helps the, the, the far right, that that debate should be dominant when it isn't necessarily dominant in people's minds. It is being allowed to, to happen in that way. And people don't look at what happened in Britain and how difficult these issues are and allowing that to control the um, decision-making of the country based on what is finally just a terrible incident that could have happened involving almost anyone, it didn't necessarily be an asylum seeker. I also made the comparison with the awful incident in Britain, also where it was a Dutch or Belgian, I'm not sure which uh, elderly man shot at his British neighbours for reasons still unknown and killed an 11-year-old girl. Well, that hasn't caused anything like the same kind of outcry, and yet it also involves what amounts to a migrant from, from, from the Netherlands. Yeah. So there's a bit of race involved here as well, obviously. And I find the way that the, the debate here uh, is being presented is reminiscent of what was happening in Britain pre-Brexit, and it would be very, very calamitously damaging for France if that was allowed to take hold. Thank you to John for that analysis. And you can find John's column in the podcast article for this week's episode and also in the show notes. 
Right, moving on. One person who's been in the headlines this week in France is the country's education minister, Pap Anjai. I think I've pronounced that correctly. Jen, why has he been in the news? So he's been in the news because of this ongoing battle about which articles of clothing are allowed in French schools. This type of conversation seems to crop up almost every summer. Uh, The French public engages in some sort of discussion about clothing that's traditionally worn by Muslims, uh, whether that's the burkini or, in this case, the abaya. Last week, Papinjai met with heads of France's school districts, les les académies, and during that meeting, he encouraged them to be more ambitious when it comes to enforcing secularism in schools. He specifically said that the abaya, which is a long, loose dress that's common in Muslim-majority countries, does constitute a piece of religious clothing, meaning it's not allowed in schools. Njai said that he would defer to the decisions made by individual school administrators, though, and said that they wouldn't be issuing any list that says just how long or loose a dress or a robe has to be in order to constitute an abaya. But this has caused a reaction by France's Council of Muslim Worship, which is a national elected body. They function basically like an interlocutor with the French government, and they felt compelled to release a press release where they explained that the abaya actually does not have any religious association with Islam. The press release said that the abaya is more of a cultural symbol. Uh, They explained that you only have to travel to a Muslim-majority country to realize that the citizens of these countries of all faiths are indistinguishable based on the clothes that they wear. And so now we'll see if this has any impact on the rules. But as things stand, students can get in trouble for wearing the abaya in French schools. Mm, This is a regular debate in France. Just give us a recap, Jen, about these secularism rules that Papandjai is talking about. So basically, France abides by the principle of laïcité or state secularism, which means that there are no displays of religion in public institutions. And in 2004, this was extended when France banned the wearing of conspicuous religious symbols or garb in state schools. And this has become more colloquially known as the French headscarf ban, but it also applies to other symbols like the cross or the kippah as well. Pap Njai actually issued a directive in November outlining more specifically how school administrators can deal with issues of students failing to respect secularism rules in French schools. In the directive, he offers more support for teachers who are wary of tackling the issue and reminds teachers and administrators that they should start by creating a dialogue with the student and their parents just to first remind them of secularism rules in school. And then the last step should be discipline. And that is only after the school has taken those first steps of building communication with the child. Mm, thanks, Jen. Uh, Emma, moving on to Pap Anjai himself. He's not your average education minister, is he? Tell us a bit more about him and how he became uh, part of Macron's government. Yeah, he's an outside appointment to the government. So most of the ministers in the French government are career politicians, as you would expect. But the president does have the option of appointing someone from outside the government, usually an expert in their particular field, to head up a ministry. And Anjai is one of these. He's actually got quite an interesting profile. He's essentially an academic and most of his studies have focused on race, on studying racial discrimination and theories of race, both in France and in the US. He spent time in US universities. And his final appointment before he became the minister was as the director of the French National Museum of Immigration, which incidentally is reopening this weekend after a fairly major refurbishment. His appointment was quite a controversial one and sort of the far right and right wing politicians seized on some of his academic work that he published in the past to accuse him of promoting kind of woke theories and also trying to import American ideas on race into France. He was probably never as left wing as he was made out to be by these, but I think it's still quite surprising to see him getting involved in these kind of laïcité arguments which come around so regularly in France. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting story. One to keep an eye on this. And of course, the minister himself has an interesting story, as you've explained, Emma. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Emma. 
Now, as we record this podcast, France's ecology minister has raised what he says are very serious concerns about groundwater levels around France, with two-thirds of the country having water table level below the norm for the season. This has raised concerns of another summer drought in France following on from last year's record drought. Half of the country is already on some level of drought alert, and the French government is obviously aware of the need to preserve water. A new campaign is urging the public to cut their time in the shower. Emma, is that right? <laughs> um, yes, yes, that is right. Um, well, it's part of the French government's campaign to encourage people to cut their water uses, which has been launched on TV, radio, billboards, social media this week, which is where you might have seen it. So if you live in an area that's on the highest level of drought alert and parts of the south of France already are, then local authorities have the power to impose water restrictions, including bans on things like washing the car or water in the garden. This is different. This is a nationwide campaign for the whole country and it's recommendations, not rules. It's actually pretty similar to the winter campaign that we had encouraging people to use energy saving tips and cut their electricity use. And in fact, it even has the same name. It's called Chaque Geste Compte or Every Gesture Counts. Okay. And the electricity campaign was actually pretty successful. If we're looking purely at household electricity usage, which didn't actually have any restrictions in place, that fell by 9.5% this winter compared to the last winter. So so if the water saving tips have a similar impact, that will really make a difference to the drought situation over the summer. Two of the parts of France particularly worrying French authorities are the Rhone Valley and the Mediterranean coast. I was just reading about authorities in La Ciotta, a town on the Mediterranean coast, where they've banned beach showers to conserve water. But locals are saying, what's the point? We'll just end up going home and having a shower instead. It shows how difficult it is to come up with effective measures, perhaps. Emma, what about these measures? Let's just run through this new advice, see if it's sensible and reasonable. Well, it really is nothing drastic. The advice is uh, to take a shower, not a bath, and to try and limit your showers to between four and five minutes. So no spending 20 minutes thinking great thoughts in the shower. Um, they suggest that you install an aerator tap and a water-saving shower head. These are gadgets that you can attach to your tap or your shower, especially if you have a power shower. And they basically just reduce the water usage while still allowing you to use the tap or the shower. And they also suggest that you check your water meter regularly. And if your usage suddenly goes up, that probably means you've got a leak. So investigate and get it fixed as quickly as possible. So that will help your bill as well as, you know, help the country. And quite a lot of these tips are aimed at gardeners, since gardens are a big usage of domestic water supplies. Some of these tips include uh, install a rainwater collection in your garden. So you can use rainwater to water the garden not tap water, install a drip system to water plants to uh, to limit evaporation and also to try and think about maintaining gardens with as little water as possible. So to sort of plant low water use drought resistant plants. Mm. Four to five minutes in the shower. That seems reasonable to me. That's actually would see me doubling the amount of time I spend in the shower, Emma. Yeah, we, we need to talk about this because this recording area is really quite small. So I think it gets hotter and hotter. Maybe you could. Consider... You don't need to shower for more than four or five minutes. Do you? A bit of soap, wash it off. Well, I mean, that's only like two songs, four to five minutes. I like to have a, a good long singing session. When right, I have yeah, a whole Spotify playlist in there. <laughs> OK, look, the most important thing I want to know is the forecast, the outlook for this summer. Any news on that? Um, yeah, it's probably going to be hot. So um, last summer, France saw a historic drought and that was followed by an unusually dry winter. So the already depleted underwater tables have not refilled over the winter. As you said earlier, two thirds of them are below 
the normal levels. And it's expected there will also be another very dry summer. So these tips that we just talked about are for households, but there are also measures in place for businesses and particularly for farmers to economise on water. But in spite of all this, almost half of France is already on some level of drought alert. As you might have noticed, it's already pretty hot. And in fact, since records began, France has never seen such a prolonged hot spell this early in the summer. I had a look at the long range forecast from Meteo France, and they say that the summer it will be hot. There will be temperatures above seasonal averages and prolonged heat waves will be more likely. But it's also expected to be quite stormy, especially in the south. And this is due to the return of the El Nino weather phase. You might think that storms and heavy rain would be good news during a drought. But in fact, extremely heavy rainstorms don't particularly help. The torrential rain usually ends up not soaking into parched ground. But what it does instead is cause flash flooding in certain areas. Yeah, we saw that in Paris on Sunday, torrential rain, storms that you know, we saw flooded the streets, metro stations. We even had hail. Yes, yeah, I had hail coming through the window. It was quite bizarre. You were holding out your glass of rosé trying to catch some, weren't you, to get some ice in there? My rosé is already perfectly chilled. I'm not <laughs> some kind of amateur, you know. Fair enough. I think this is a good time to bring in John Litchfield once again. I asked John what the situation was like up in rural Normandy and whether the subject of water is going to dominate French politics in the years to come. <laughs> well, Normandy doesn't have a reputation as being the sunniest and driest part of France, as you know. Last year, though, was a terrible year for, for drought, and my own garden was dried up into Sahara-like conditions by the end of August, and the water tables did shrink. This year, there was a lot of rain in winter, there was a lot of rain in the spring, then there's been a month of, uh, of drought or so now in the last few weeks, and then a big rain downfall last weekend. So things are beginning to look a bit parched, but it's still pretty green out there. I don't think there's a big issue in Normandy this year. I think across the rest of France, there, there is an issue where they didn't have as much rain in the winter and they didn't have as much rain in the spring. And so, you know, it's cumulative. The drought of the last few years has not been replenished by new water supplies and it's looking pretty dry and hot again this year. And the forecast, I think, is for again another very hot summer. So yeah. I think this is going to become um, a big, big issue in French life and French politics um, already is, but even more so in the years ahead. Well, let me ask you about that, John. I mean, you know, the government is giving advice about how long we should take showers. Do you think, you know, given this droughts are going to become more extreme as the years progress, are the French government going to have to take firmer action in the years to come? Yes, I think they, they inevitably are in some areas, maybe not across the whole country. I think what we've also seen is already a flashpoint in agricultural policy as to whether or not, um, I mean, there are crops that are grown in, in fairly dry parts of France, particularly maize, uh, which is hugely dependent on water. And, uh, you know, you only have to drive through those parts of France in the summer to see those huge machines that look like Loch Ness monsters across fields, you know, which are permanently um, spraying the crops with water. And you sometimes even see them spraying the crops with water while it's raining because they're, they're done on time uh, systems rather than, you know, because it's been dry for, for a little while. They just they demand more water than the, the country's the nature is able to supply even in a normal year. So uh, I think a lot of decisions are going to have to be made on whether those crops can continue in that way. And that was what the argument was behind that the terrible rioting that there was. I think it was in March um, in the Deux-Sèvres in the centre of France about the creation of a big agricultural reservoir, which you know might may or may not be justified. But the uh, sort of extreme environmental, not so extreme environmental pressure groups thought that this was an example of exactly what France shouldn't be doing. That it shouldn't be encouraging the continuation of those kind of very water greedy crops. Um, in, in the context of, of future drought. Uh, so, yeah, politically, it's going to be a big issue in, in the years ahead. And agricultural politics, especially environmental politics, especially, are going to come into conflict over water and not just in France. I think it's going to be obviously one of the big, big issues in the world in the years ahead. Thank you, John, once again for joining us on the line from Normandy. 
And moving on to our reader question about France. Jen, this is a timely question. This week, French high school pupils sat the examination for the Bac de Philo or the philosophy exam that is part of the baccalaureate. So is is it true that philosophy is compulsory for French high school students? Yes, there is a required philosophy course and test for all lycée students in their terminal, which is their last year of high school. In a lot of other countries, philosophy is just an optional class in secondary school. And in other places, like in the U.S., uh, you usually don't start studying philosophy until university. But in France, it is a compulsory one-year course, and then it's followed by a philosophy exam, which is part of the, the baccalauréat, or it's called colloquially the bac de philo, which is needed in order to graduate with a diploma in France. And honestly, the importance of philosophy in French life surprised me quite a bit when I first moved. I thought it was kind of a stereotype of like this philosophical or intellectual French person. But in my experience, there are plenty of French people that actually read philosophy for fun and will randomly reference philosophical concepts in a regular discussion, which definitely is not something I ran into as much in the US. <laughs> yeah, that is true. I see. Now, this bag de philo is a long exam where French baccalaureate students have to grapple with complicated questions like... Are we responsible for the future? In fact, this year's subjects, which were made public at the time of recording, included questions such as, is happiness a matter of reason? And is wanting peace, wanting justice? And to transform nature is to gain freedom, question mark. Emma, is to transform nature to gain freedom? I have literally no idea what you're talking about, Ben. I'm so I've happy. I've never, never known you not to be able to answer France. a question before, Emma. <laughs> I don't even stumped. understand the question. <laughs> Right. Now, look, the reality is that France has been home to a lot of important philosophers over the years, too. My favourites, the ones I read the most, are Descartes. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Continue. You suggested I don't read philosophy. Look, I'm thinking of Descartes, Sartre, de Beauvoir, and, of course, my favourite French philosopher, Eric Cantona. You know ah, him? Yes, yes. The seagulls, they follow exactly. the trolley. Exactly. He yes. once said, Cantona once said, we have to realise we live in a circus, in a big circus, and do things seriously without taking ourselves too seriously. I think that sums up this podcast. He's honest. a very wise man, Eric Cantona. He is, he is indeed. Now, look, um, does this tradition have anything to do with why French people care so much about philosophy, Jen? Well, yeah, absolutely. I think philosophy is a big part of the country's ethos or its founding myth. In the 1700s, France's version of rationalism helped to lay the foundations for the revolution and the creation of the rights of man document. And then the study of philosophy became institutionalized, like pretty early on, actually. Uh, it was Napoleon who created the modern version of uh, the lycée. At the time, it was pretty exclusionary, though. No women were allowed. But in lycée, there was a philosophy instruction. And in 1808, Napoleon also created the baccalaureate, which we know is the end of high school examination. And in order to pass, you would have needed a pretty good knowledge of philosophy. Over the years, French society has started to see philosophy as uh, the foundation for critical thinking, basically. It's it's necessary to build active and participating future citizens. I noticed this a lot when I was teaching in France, this emphasis of really preparing kids to be future members of the republic and being able to think critically is a big part of that. Uh, you started to see this idea being made official in the early 1900s. So, for example, there was a bulletin that was sent out to French teachers in 1922 on the topic of philosophy and its teaching. It defined philosophy as learning freedom through the exercise of reflection and that it's the meaning and purpose of public instruction, which is designed to prepare enlightened citizens. 
These days, you see philosophy in so many aspects of French life. French politicians will quote random philosophers during speeches and announcements. In the 1950s and 60s, popular TV shows actually broadcast philosophers just reading their works out loud, and they were in primetime TV slots as well. And plenty of French people still cite works of philosophy as their favorite books, like, for example, the Albert Camus book, The Stranger, was in 12th place for France's 50 favorite books just last year. All right, it's not just me that doesn't read philosophy. Do you guys read French philosophy or philosophy? No. Can you, imagine, can you imagine answering those questions as a 17-year-old? I can't answer them now. No. <laughs> I would really fail. Is, it bank. really is incredible. It's fascinating, Jen. Thanks for uh, explaining all that to us. I've often wondered why this French obsession with philosophy, but now I know. Before we sign off this episode, it's time to bring you some life hacks and tips. Who's going to start us off? Emma, go on. Uh, yeah, I could have um, mentioned this earlier, actually, but if you're anywhere near Paris, check out the new Musée de l'Histoire et de l'Immigration, which is the National Immigration Museum. It's been closed for a fairly major refurbishment and its permanent exhibition reopens this weekend. It's free on, uh, on Saturday and Sunday. I'm going along to it because obviously... All three of us here are immigrants. Um, we tend to see our stories maybe as individual, but we're actually part of a, a centuries-long trend in France. So I'm excited to learn more about our story this weekend. Fair enough. Um, Good tip. Yeah, it's uh, it's over in eastern Paris, close to the Bois de Vincennes as well. So that'd be a nice place to hang out and enjoy some sunshine afterwards. According to the map, it's quite close to the nudist area. So that's also useful if that's your this bag. This is why you're <laughs> planning to make a day of it. <laughs> Jen, anything from you? So my tip is like maybe a little bit more in your free time when you have some spare time and you're looking for something to do I would recommend watching some French movies and the one that I watched recently was called Le Prophète now there's a bit of a disclaimer it's kind of violent and uh, deals with some difficult topics but basically it explores um, the experience of this young man in the French prison system and I found it to be really interesting because I'd never really seen the French prison system displayed before um, and it tackles a lot of interesting social topics in France so that's my recommendation is to test out Le Prophète. It's a cracking film I've seen it. Okay look before we go my final recommendation is basically what I think is the best place in France people like the Eiffel Tower, people like Mont Saint-Michel, some people like the Gorge de Verdun. The best place, without question, is for me Decathlon in I, France. I've you know, the big a, sports store. I've never quite understood your Decathlon obsession, I must admit, but go on. Look, let me just <laughs> let me explain. Me. In summer, you know, France is fantastic for outdoor sports, whether it's hiking, whether it's, you know, swimming in the sea, paddle boarding. My purchase of the summer was a kayak which I took on the River Seine last week near Fontainebleau. It's fantastic. Decathlon basically sells everything you want to take advantage of being outdoors in France. Even, you know, petanque, bulls, riding, even shooting if you're into hunting, which, you know, I'm not. Honestly, if Decathlon had a bar in there and maybe a hotel, I would spend a weekend <laughs> in Decathlon and a night out there. Uh, you not, not agree? I don't know. I think you need to go to the US and visit Bass Pro Shop and then we can talk about hanging out in an outdoor shop. They've actually, some of them actually have a little pool where you can practice fishing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds great. Okay. I've never seen that in Decathlon. Emma, Decathlon, have you ever been? Uh, yeah. Like when I need boring stuff like trainers. <laughs> um, I don't really understand your obsession with it, but I'm very happy that you're happy with I've, it. I've so. applied for it to become an UNESCO World Heritage Site by the year 2030. So Well, they will be sponsoring the Olympics next year, That's so true. they've got their name up in lights in That's some true. sense. Just check it out. You get everything you need for outdoor sports in France this summer. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks to you all for listening and join us once again next week for more news and talking points about France.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 